Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. I'd like to thank Indeed for supporting my podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. That's post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. Get started with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Well, I don't want anyone to accuse me of ignoring Bitcoin when it rallies because it had a face-ripping rally, began on Sunday, continued into Monday. In fact, just before I started to record the podcast, Bitcoin had retaken the 40,000 level. I think the high was around 40,500 and change. Although now that I've got the recording underway, we sold back down below. In fact, we're back below 39,000, but still a hell of a rally when you realize that we were below 30,000 last week. In fact, I think we went into the weekend at around 34,000. So we got a big rally. Is there any real fundamental catalyst for it? I don't think so. I mean, people are talking about maybe Elon Musk is going to announce that Tesla is going to start accepting Bitcoin again for Teslas, even though when they were accepting Bitcoin for Teslas, nobody was actually buying any Teslas with Bitcoin. And even if they decide they're going to accept Bitcoin, they're not going to be selling any Teslas for Bitcoin. It's all a bunch of nothing. It's all hype to try to prop up the market. But that's part of the rumor. There was some rumor that Amazon was looking to hire somebody to work on you know, their digital strategy or cryptocurrency. And, oh, maybe Amazon is going to start taking Bitcoin. I don't think there's any fundamental reason for the rally. To me, it's all technical. I think there were a lot of shorts that were looking at this big head and shoulders top forming that I had been talking about. They probably jumped the gun a little bit, assumed it was going to break down, got short, got trapped, light volume over the weekend. They got squeezed. I think that's all this is, is a big short squeeze. And you got to remember that just the way bull markets climb a wall of worry, bear markets slide a slope of hope. And it's these face-ripping, short-covering rallies that create that hope. You always get some of the biggest rallies in bear markets, just like you get some of the biggest crashes in bull markets. That scares out the week longs. Well, big rallies in bear market scares out the week shorts, And it suckers in some more buyers, but more importantly, it creates the hope that the market has bottomed out. And so it keeps a lot of people on board who might otherwise throw in the towel and sell when you get these rallies and all of a sudden you start talking about the moon again and people start thinking about how quickly Bitcoin can rally and they're convinced that we're at a bottom. It keeps a lot of people on board. It's kind of like boiling the frog, right? You don't turn all the the heat up too quickly because the frog will jump out of the pot. So you want to turn it up slowly so he stays in there and cooks. And that's basically what the market is doing with the hodlers. It's making sure that they don't jump out of the pot, that they stay in there and they get cooked to death as the market continues to grind to new lows, which is what I expect to happen. But, you know, I really don't want to talk about the stuff that's going up today. I want to talk about some of the stocks 
that are going way down. And these are the Chinese educational companies, for-profit companies that provide tutoring in China to students. And, you know, they trade in Hong Kong, but also there are a few of them here that have ADRs. One of them, Gautu Technidu Inc., symbol is G-O-T-U. That stock down about 29% on the day to $2.50. 52-week high, $149. So $149 down to $2.50. Obviously, the news started to break earlier than over the weekend that China was cracking down on these companies. Look at New Oriental Education and Technology down 34% today, $1.94, 52-week high, $19.97. So again, down 90% from its high on that one. Another stock, Tal Educational Group, down 27% today, closed at 4.40, 52-week high, over $90, $90.96. So the stock down like 95%. I mean, maybe it's going down 100%. Maybe all these companies are going bankrupt because basically the Chinese government is outlawing their business model. And their business model is tutoring students, helping Chinese students get smarter, be better educated so that they're more productive workers. Why on earth would the Chinese government be outlawing such a noble business as educating young people? Well, the reason I want to talk about it is as another example of all of the stupid things that governments do, right? Even governments like the Chinese, where the Chinese officials don't have to get elected. And so you would think, gee, they don't have to do stupid things because they don't have to get people to vote for them. Maybe they could do smart things. And in many cases, they do. And I think American politicians do even more dumb things uh, than the Chinese but Chinese government is not immune. Even though they don't have to go to the polls, they still do a lot of stupid things because they do want uh, the public to support them. They do want the people to believe that the government is doing what's in their best interest. And I think, you know, a lot of these uh, Chinese government officials may actually believe this nonsense. I mean, there are a lot of people who believe foolish things. I mean, in America, maybe we call them Democrats. Uh, but in China, they're just a communist party, although they're not really communist anymore, although they're certainly acting like it when it comes to this law, which highlights, again, the risks involved of investing in mainland China. I mean, I've had some bad experiences myself investing in mainland China. I've had some good experiences as well. So I've had some huge home runs investing in China, but I've also completely struck out and, and had companies that went under. And this is another example. Now, fortunately, I dodged this bullet. I didn't have any of my own money, nor did I have any client money invested in any of these Chinese education stocks. But it is example of the political risk that comes with investing in China. Now, there's political risk investing everywhere. I think there's a lot of political risk in the United States that is being dramatically underestimated by investors. So investors seem to understand that political risk goes with the territory when it comes to China. And a lot of Chinese stocks trade at significant discounts because investors are discounting that risk. Uh, but they completely ignore that risk when it comes to U.S. stocks, even though if you look at the way the political winds are blowing in this country, uh, the political risk is getting greater and greater uh, that the U.S. government is going to come after American companies, you know, in a similar way that the Chinese government is, is coming after these companies. But what is their logic? Like, why is the Chinese government doing this? And this is what I have read on the topic. Now, apparently, the Chinese government wants more kids to be born in China. They want the population to grow. Now, this may seem particularly ironic because for a long time, China had a one-child policy, meaning they made it illegal for families to have more than one kid. Now they're complaining that we don't have enough people and we need more people. Well, whose fault is that, right? The Chinese government imposed this ridiculous policy and they've relaxed it somewhat. They recently went from a two-child policy to now three children. But if they really want 
more people, why have a restriction at all? Why not get rid of it? Why not let families have as many kids as they can afford, as many kids as they want? I mean, there may be some families now that are up to their limit at three kids that would have a fourth kid, that would have a fifth kid, but they can't because the law makes it illegal. So get rid of the law, number one, right? It shows you how ridiculous it is. On the one hand, they're claiming that they want more kids to be born. On the other hand, they have a law limiting the number of kids that are allowed to be born, right? Now, of course, we do the same thing here. I mean, we have contradictory policies. I mean, we spend a lot of money trying to encourage people not to smoke, and then we spend a lot of money subsidizing tobacco farmers to grow tobacco, right? So there's a lot of mutually contradictory policies that the U.S. government pursues. So it's not just China that does stuff like this. This is something that governments all around the world do. Their, their left hand has no idea what their right hand is doing. But the rationale now is that the Chinese government thinks that one of the reasons that families are not having more kids, apart from you know their own restrictions on the number they can have, is that it's expensive to raise kids and that the cost of raising kids is going up. And because the cost of raising kids is going up, families are choosing to have fewer kids because it's too expensive to raise them. Right? And of course, that is true. Uh, families in general, when they're not on welfare, you know, when they're having to pay for their kids themselves, they do do a cost-benefit analysis. And there are probably a lot of families that would have more children if it wasn't so expensive to raise them, you know, to house them, to feed them, to educate them. All of these factors are considered when people decide how large a family to have. Now, there are other factors other than cost, but cost certainly is a factor, particularly if you're of a limited income. I mean, I guess if you're very, very rich, then it doesn't matter uh, what the cost is. You have other factors that might cause you to have fewer children, but cost wouldn't be one. But if you're middle class, upper middle class, certainly cost is a significant issue when deciding on the number of children that you're going to have. So the Chinese government is saying, okay, it costs a lot of money to raise children and therefore not as many people are having as many children. So the solution is we need to lower the cost of raising children. And their brilliant idea to lower the cost of raising children is to make it illegal for these companies to sell tutoring services, educational services for a profit. Because apparently families in China are spending a lot of money on this extra education, which is above and beyond what they're getting you know, for free at the public schools. Families are paying extra to give their kids an advantage by taking additional coursework, and, and they're paying money for it. And so the Chinese government's saying, hey, why don't we just outlaw these companies or make it illegal for these companies to offer educational services at a profit, and that will mean that the cost will come down because the only reason they're so expensive is because you've got these greedy business people trying to make a profit. And so the profits are gouging the customers. And if we could just take the profit out, then the cost will come down and then it won't be as expensive to have kids because you won't have to pay these huge bills uh, to educate them at for-profit companies. And so people will have more kids because the cost of education will come down, which is absurd on its face. Because profits don't make things expensive, profits are what keeps things cheap. It's what makes things more affordable. It is the pursuit of private profit that keeps a lid on prices because companies compete with one another. They're trying to sell their services. There are a lot of these companies in China that are selling these educational services and they are in competition with one another. And obviously when you're competing, you're competing on two things. You're competing on quality and you're competing on price. Highest quality, lowest price. And then the customers, the parents of the children who are paying the bills, they evaluate the quality and the cost and they make a decision in the market where they can get the best value. And so because of this competitive market and because the businesses want to make a profit and they can only make a profit by offering a competitive product, the pursuit of profit is the pursuit of minimizing costs 
so that you can maximize your profit by keeping your prices low. The idea that you're going to get lower prices by eliminating the profits is absurd. In fact, the Chinese should already know this because when they were pursuing that Chinese policy on a bigger scale, their country was broke. It wasn't until they abandoned that failed ideology, that profits are bad, that profits are evil, that the country started to prosper. I mean, you might as well say, oh, food is really expensive because we have all these farmers trying to make a profit. Why don't we outlaw for-profit farming? The only farm should be government farms where they don't have to make a profit because after all, we don't want eating to be really expensive. After all, part of the cost of raising your kids is feeding them and Clearly, if we have all these for-profit companies, they're going to gouge us so much, eating is going to be real expensive. So let's nationalize all the farms, nationalize all the grocery stores. Let's have the government supply all the food, get rid of all the profits, and therefore eating will be really cheap. Except we know from experience that when you do that, eating isn't cheap. Eating is rare. There's nothing to eat. You're starving. You're waiting in long lines for bread. That's what happens when you take the profit out of agriculture. Well, the same thing is going to happen if you take the profit out of education. You're going to have a lower quality education at a higher cost. I mean, if the Chinese government really wants to help out Chinese families and make it easier for them to afford to raise their kids, what they need is to abandon their soft peg to the dollar, let interest rates go up so that they can earn higher yields on their savings, let the property bubble pop so that housing costs come down. Uh, let the value of the Chinese currency rise so that the cost of living goes down so that more of what the Chinese produce can be consumed domestically rather than subsidize exports to the United States. There are a lot of constructive free market policies that would lower the cost of living and encourage Chinese families to have more children. The one thing that's not going to work is outlawing private education under some cockamamie theory that if you take the profits out, you're going to lower the costs and somehow improve the quality when you're going to do the opposite. But I don't want to just beat up the Chinese, right? Because it's not like it's only China that does this. I mean, again, you would think they wouldn't do it as much because they don't have to stand for elections like we do in America. If your company's goal is to hire great people, you need a plan to make sure it happens fast. You can find the right person fast using Indeed's Instant Match. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed. It's the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all your hiring in just one place, even the interviewing. So don't just hope your perfect candidate finds you. Find them using the tools Indeed provides you that enable you to cut through the noise faster and smarter. In fact, using Indeed Instant Match, you are provided with a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you post a sponsored job. Indeed Instant Match immediately delivers quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description. You can even invite potential applicants to apply right away. And according to Indeed data, candidates that you invite are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who see your job using search alone. Plus, with Instant Match, Indeed data shows 90% of employers get quality candidates from Indeed's resume database as soon as they sponsor a job post, according to Indeed data. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. So join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And you can get started right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com Peter. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. Offer valid through September 30th. Terms and conditions apply. One of the big problems in the United States is that our leaders are elected. And unfortunately, the way you get elected is by taking stances that are popular in order to win votes. 
See, there's an old saying about the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Well, the problem is when it comes to voters, they can see the pavement. The pavement is very obvious. It's the destination. It's where the road leads that is a lot less obvious. So in American politics, it's intentions that count. It's not the outcome. So if there's a program that is well-intentioned, you win votes by supporting it. You lose votes if you oppose it. Even if you oppose it because you argue that, yes, I understand the well-intentions, but here are the unintended consequences of these good intentions. The law is actually going to be harmful. That's not good politics because you're not going to win an election by taking the economic high road. You're going to win it by taking the economic low road by appealing to emotion and by showing the voters that you're a good guy, right? Because voters like to vote for good people. And so good people support these well-intentioned laws. And so everybody wants to jump on board and nobody has the guts to stand up against them. Such is the case with the Americans with Disability Act, which is a perfect example of this. And the reason I'm even talking about this particular act today is because President Biden tweeted out the fact that today happens to be the 31st anniversary of the passage of the Americans with Disability Act, which came out under a Republican president, right? George Bush Sr. Uh, signed on to that bill. So it's not just Democrats that make this mistake. It's Republicans too. Everybody wants to be liked and everybody wants to vote for these bills that sound good and make the people who support them appear like they're good people. But nobody wants to really look at the damage that these laws are going to create. And certainly now, with the benefit of hindsight, if you didn't know 31 years ago how much harm this law was going to create, you certainly know now. So to the extent that there was an excuse back then, and there really wasn't because anybody with a basic understanding of economics, I mean, I was very much opposed to this law when it was passed, and I was very upset at Bush for signing it and all the Republicans who proudly supported it. But even if you were too dumb to realize back then how harmful the law would be, you have mountains of evidence now that shows just how harmful it is, yet there are no calls from anybody to repeal the law, again, because repealing it, even though it's the right thing to do economically, is bad politics because it makes the people who want to appeal it look bad. Oh, you don't care about the disabled, right? You're a bad person. How could you say that you're not in favor of a law that helps the disabled without putting any of this into context? Because sure, I will acknowledge that there are some benefits for people who are disabled. Now, there also are a lot of negatives for the people who are disabled. It's harder for the disabled to recognize those negatives. I'm going to point them out, but they're there. But yes, there are benefits from this law that are easy to see for the people who specifically benefit from it, who are disabled. And now businesses around the country are required legally to accommodate these disabilities. But there's always a cost-benefit analysis. And what you have to look at are the costs to society. And of course, the disabled are part of society. So when they're wearing that hat, the costs to society of providing this benefit far outweigh the value of the benefit, meaning the added economic benefit to the disabled is tiny compared to the enormity of the cost that society has to bear in order to provide this benefit. And we do not have an unlimited amount of resources. So we have to look at the laws in totality and decide if the benefits to the few outweigh the cost to the many. And when it comes to the Disability Act, it clearly does not. Now, even before I get into the horrible economic outcomes of this law, I just want to touch briefly on the unconstitutionality of the law itself. Because clearly, there's nothing in the Constitution. You can look at Article 1, Section 8. I've read that article in its entirety on previous podcasts where I've talked about the Constitution, particularly some of my 4th of July episodes. But there's nothing in the Constitution that empowers the U.S. government to pass laws to compel private businesses to accommodate people with disabilities. 
Now, you can argue that, well, if the states wanted to pass such laws, there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that prohibits it. And that is true. I would agree. You would have to look to each state's individual constitution to see what limitations a state may have imposed on its government. But clearly, there is nothing in the Constitution that would limit a state or local government from imposing these type of requirements. But there is nothing in the U.S. Constitution that authorizes the federal government to blanketly impose these requirements on everybody all over the country. Now, of course, the courts would disagree with me and they would say, well, you know, the Constitution has a commerce clause and the U.S. government has the right to regulate interstate commerce. Therefore, they can have the Americans with Disability Act. But that is pure nonsense. I've talked about that on this podcast as well. The commerce clause gives the United States government the right to regulate interstate commerce. What it does not do is give them the right to regulate businesses that engage in commerce. But unfortunately, in rewriting the Constitution under the guise of interpretation, the Supreme Court has actually taken that position that by giving the federal government the right to regulate commerce, they also gave them the right to regulate companies that are engaged in commerce. And then other court rulings have expanded that. And they said, you know what? It's not even that they're engaged in commerce themselves. The Commerce Clause now gives the U.S. government the right to regulate any business, even if that business is not directly engaged in interstate commerce. But if something that it does can, in some tangential way, have an effect on interstate commerce. So in other words, they've so broadened this clause as to basically say that the Constitution authorizes the U.S. government to regulate every single business in the country in any matter that it wants. In other words, the Commerce Clause rendered unto the federal government unlimited powers to regulate any business for any reason. Now, clearly, that can't be the case because the framers, and we know this, they've told us this in their writings and in the Constitution itself, in Article 1, Section 10, we know that the federal government is one of limited powers. The powers are few and defined in Article 1, Section 8. And obviously, a federal government that has unlimited powers to do whatever it wants can't be said to have powers that are few and defined. So the whole thing is completely unconstitutional, but I don't want to you know, make the podcast too much about the legality Uh, nor even do I want to talk so much about the morality of it. I mean, certainly it is immoral for the government to impose these requirements. It is a violation of individual liberty, individual freedom for the U.S. government to force an American who happens to open up a business, let's say a restaurant, to tell that restaurateur, you have to cater to people with disabilities and you need to make these expensive modifications to your business in order to cater to this particular group of customers, even if that's not something that you want to do, I don't think that that is what happens in a free country. People are free to set up businesses and to cater to whatever clientele they want. And people cannot force other Americans to engage in commerce with them if that's not something that they want to do or to engage in commerce in a particular way. A business owner should have the right to operate a business the way he sees fit, and then potential customers could decide on their own whether or not that's a business that they want to patronize. And if they do, fine. And if they don't, they don't go. You know, if you have a disability, and I'm certainly sympathetic to anybody with a disability, I can certainly end up with a disability of my own one day. I mean, there, but for the grace of God, anybody can be in an accident and end up in a wheelchair, or we're all going to get old. And at some point, we may be getting around in wheelchairs. Who knows? Um, But when you have a disability in a free society, it's not up to society to accommodate your disability. It's up to you as an individual to accommodate your disability to society. That is how freedom works. It's not about forcing other people at the point of a gun to make special accommodations to you. You just figure out how best to work your disability to accommodate everybody else. I'll give you a perfect example before I even get into the disabilities that are protected under law, because there are a lot of people that have, call them a disability or whatever, they have something that's different and they have to accommodate their actions 
to society. One example would be Orthodox Jews who only eat kosher, right? So when they're at home, they have a kosher kitchen. And if you don't know what keeping kosher is, in Judaism, there are some Jews, they're Orthodox, and according to the traditions, you can't mix meat with dairy. And so you have to wait a certain number of hours uh, between eating meat and eating dairy. And in fact, you have to prepare the food. You have to use different pots. You have to use different sets of dishes. Even though you wash the dishes, you can't eat your meat off of the same plates that you eat your dairy, right? So you have to have two sets of dishes. You know, it's complicated to have a kosher kitchen, but, you know, people who are kosher make these accommodations. But obviously, if you're kosher, you have a hard time going out to a restaurant because, you know, you can't expect all the restaurants to be kosher just in case you happen to go in because there's only a small percentage of the population that's Jewish, number one, but then there's only a small percentage of Jews that are kosher. I mean, I'm Jewish, but I don't keep kosher, and most Jews don't. So you've got a real small segment, a minority of a minority of people that are kosher. Now, they're not going to the government and they're saying, hey, we want every restaurant in the United States to keep kosher, because it's not fair. I mean, we should have the same rights as every other American. We shouldn't have to limit our restaurant going to just those few restaurants that happen to be kosher, we should be able to go to any restaurant we want in the country and demand that they provide us with kosher meals. Now, people would say, that's ridiculous. You, you know, We're not going to do that. But it's the same thing, right? And why don't we demand that all restaurants keep kosher? Because it would be very expensive for all these restaurants to be kosher, especially if hardly any of their customers are keeping kosher themselves. I mean, most people couldn't give a damn whether the restaurant is kosher or not. So we can't force every single restaurant at massive expense. Now, would it be nice if the Jews who are kosher didn't have to do any research before they went out and you know go on the internet and see which restaurants in their neighborhood are kosher and then just dine at those restaurants? Wouldn't it be great if they could just go to any restaurant they wanted and it would be kosher? Oh, sure, yeah, life would be great. But you know what? We have to make choices. We have to limit resources. And it's the responsibility of the people who are kosher to just do a little homework and find the restaurants that are kosher. Now, will there be restaurants that are kosher? Sure, there'll be some. Most of them won't be, but then there's a market. So those Jews who do keep kosher, yes, they're not going to get to go to, maybe there's 100 restaurants in town and maybe only one or two of them are kosher. And yes, so that's where they're going to have to eat. But that's where it's viable because now the business owner there who is making these investments has the ability to get a return on that investment because he's going to get the business of all the Jews who are keeping kosher because they're all going to this one restaurant. If you had like a hundred restaurants in the town and there was a law that required all hundred restaurants to have kosher kitchens, even though maybe there's only 10 Jews, there's no way any of these restaurants are going to be able to break even on their investments because they're splitting up the market. There's not enough people for all these restaurants. But if only one restaurant or two restaurants made the investment and then they got all the business, they may be able to come out ahead financially. And of course, society, you know, you're, you're not squandering all of these resources. Now, I know some people are going to say, well, Peter, it's not a perfect example because people choose to be kosher right? People don't choose a disability. I mean, you're stuck with it. So people, you know, could choose not to be kosher. Well, a lot of people who are kosher would say that it's not a choice. I mean, it's, this is the commandments of God. You know, they're doing what the Lord tells them to do. They don't have a choice in the matter. They, they've got to do what the Lord tells them. Uh, so in a way, it's not a choice. I mean, a lot of people who are kosher would probably prefer not to be. I mean, it's, it's a hassle, but they feel that they have to do this in order to honor their religion. So in a way, it's not a choice. But here's an example of something that is not a choice. What about the person who is born with really large feet, right? Let's say I've got a size 15 shoe. Is that a disability? I don't know, maybe, maybe not, but it's certainly a rarity, right? And it's not something that I have any control over, I'm just born in genetics. That's the size of my, of my foot. Now, I got a big foot. What is one of the drawbacks about having a really big foot? Well, it's going to be hard to find shoes, right? I mean, if I'm going to walk into a shoe store 
and I'm going to see a pair of shoes that I like, what are the odds they're going to have it in a size 15? Probably not very good. I mean, they may not even make it in a size 15. And if they do, what's the odds that any given store is going to stock a size 15 just on the rare chance that Bigfoot is going to walk into the store and want to try on a pair or even buy a pair, right? Probably not that high. I mean, if you have a size nine, you have a size 10, eight, you know, whatever. Yeah, you can pretty much go to any shoe store and they're going to have your size. If you've got a foot that's within the normal size of a male foot, businesses are going to invest in that inventory because they're probably going to sell it. Now, does that mean that people that have size 15 feet are just walking around barefoot because they can't buy shoes? No, of course not. Because there are some stores, these big and tall shops, that will stock that size. Why will they stock that size? Well, because they know the people who have these big feet can't just go to any shoe store. They got to go to these big and tall stores. And the big and tall stores advertise, hey, Sasquatch, you got a big foot? Come on in. I've got you covered. We've got all these size 15s. And so now all the people with these big feet, even though there's not that many of them, well, they all go to the same stores. And so now it works economically. Is it inconvenient for the guy that has big feet? Sure. Yeah, it's not fair. He'd probably rather have a size 10. But you know what? He's got size 15. Maybe there's some other benefits that come with those big feet, but one of them isn't shopping for shoes. So he's got to accommodate. You know, even a very big Democratic president, John F. Kennedy, one of his best quotes, life isn't fair. That's true. It's not fair, right? And so you just got to make do. You got to play the hand that you got dealt and you got big feet. Well, okay, you know, you got to go online and you got to find the stores. In fact, with the internet now, it's even better for people with big feet. You just order the size 15s and they ship them to you. You try it on, you don't like it, you send it back. No big deal, right? But what if the people with big feet, right, that got written into the Americans Disabilities Act as a disability. And the law said that every single shoe store has to carry every single possible size that anybody could wear. So in other words, if somebody is a size 15, every shoe store has to have every style in 15, maybe even 16. Maybe there's somebody that's got a size 16. I'm not really sure what the biggest foot is. Maybe I have to check the Guinness book. But whatever that is, if there's one guy that's got that big foot, every single shoe store in every American town has to have that size shoe just in case that guy with this ginormous foot happens to walk into that store. You better be prepared with, with that size 15. How much would that cost? I mean, think about it. All these shoe stores would now have to order all these massive shoes that they're never going to sell because the odds of that really big-footed guy coming to that one store are pretty slim, right? When you talk about every single shoe store in the entire country, I mean, there are certainly little towns where, you know, you probably know there's not a single person in this town that's got a size 15, but I have to stock them anyway because maybe somebody will take a vacation in this town and want to go shopping for shoes and that person's going to have a size 15 shoe. So I have got to stock all these size 15s. So what would happen? The shoe store would now have to raise prices on all of the other shoes, the size nines and the size 10s, right? They'd have to raise the price on the shoes that they are selling to make up for the cost of inventorying all these shoes that nobody is buying, right? This is the idiocy of it. So again, nobody is going to say, yes, Peter, let's require all the shoe stores to accommodate this disability, right? Because obviously it's too expensive, even though the person who's got a size 15 shoe was born with that, you know, malady, born with that disability. We're still saying it's up to that person to accommodate it. He doesn't have the right to demand every shoe store stock size 15. He needs to go and do research and just go to the shoe stores that have size 15. Well, why should it be any different for people in wheelchairs, right? Why is it that just because I'm in a wheelchair, and let's say it's me, let's say something happened to me and I was in a wheelchair, whatever. I had an accident, I had a car accident, I fell off a horse, you know, whatever. And now, you know, I'm paralyzed from the waist down and I'm in a wheelchair, right? It could happen, right? So now I'm in a wheelchair. Why should I now have the right to demand that every single restaurant 
in every town in the United States accommodate my disability. Whether I go there or not, why should I force that? Everybody, just in case I happen to go to your restaurant, you need to accommodate me. Your parking spaces need to accommodate me. Your bar counters need to accommodate me. Your bathrooms need to accommodate me. You have to accommodate me at whatever the cost is. I may never go to your restaurant, but in case I do, you've got to make these investments anyway, just in case I happen to go to your restaurant. How absurd is that? How about, Peter, I'm in a wheelchair. I want to go out to a restaurant. Okay, let me go on the internet and let me see which restaurants accommodate people in wheelchairs. And I go to those. Just like the kosher Jews, they don't just go to any old restaurant and expect them to be kosher. They figure out which restaurants are kosher, and then they go to those restaurants. The same thing should happen with somebody who's in a wheelchair. I look at the restaurants that accommodate wheelchairs, and those are the ones I go to. I mean, there's going to be some. There's going to be some restaurants that are catering to that market And because not all restaurants are catering to that market, since there's only a small subset, then they get enough business at that small subset to cover the cost of making the investments. And then, of course, society is not wasting all these resources retrofitting restaurants that no disabled people are actually going to. I mean, think about going back to my example of the Orthodox Jews. Let's say there's a small town and there's 10 people in that town that are kosher, and there's 100 restaurants in the town. Well, are you going to pass a law that says all 100 restaurants need to be kosher because you only got 10 kosher people in the whole town? I mean, it's impossible to justify the expense. I mean, what if I got a Chinese restaurant and not a single one of those people who is kosher even likes Chinese food? So none of them are going to go to the Chinese restaurant, yet I'm still going to have to retrofit my restaurant to accommodate kosher people who are never going to eat in my restaurant because none of them likes Chinese, right? Why doesn't the one restaurant that wants to cater to that market, it's the one that goes kosher. And now those 10 people, they want to go out in a restaurant, that's the one they go to, right? So, I mean, yes, are their choices limited? Yes, their choices are limited. That's life. They're kosher. You're kosher. Your choices are going to be limited because you're not really conforming to the norms. You're doing something that not a lot of other people do, so you're not going to get as many choices. Same thing in wheelchairs. If there's a town and there's a few people in wheelchairs, they are not going to be able to go to every single restaurant if they demand that every single restaurant accommodate them. But there will be maybe one or two that will Because now, if you have all the people in wheelchairs just going to those same few restaurants, then those restaurateurs will be able to earn enough money to cover the costs of these modifications. Now, maybe some of the people in wheelchairs, you know, they won't care. Hey, I'll eat in a restaurant even if it doesn't have an easily accessible bathroom. I mean, I'll make do with the bathroom they've got. Or maybe the grade on the parking space isn't exactly up to code. But you know what? I don't care. I'm going to go there anyway, right? So it's not like you even have to comply with all of these rules in order to be able to use the establishment. In fact, one of the things you have right now with the Americans with Disabilities Act is you have a whole cottage industry of people that are shaking down small business owners where people with disabilities, let's say somebody in a wheelchair, goes into a restaurant specifically to file a lawsuit. They're not going there to have a meal. They're going there to find a violation, even a minor violation, and then they're going to end up filing a lawsuit. And the problem with these Americans with Disabilities lawsuits is it's so expensive for the small business to defend it. And if they lose, and they easily could lose on a technicality, right, the liability is huge. Because it's not just the loss to the customer who somehow felt he was discriminated against based on the fact that you weren't providing the legally required accommodation, but you have to cover all of the costs of their attorneys. And the attorney's fees can dwarf what the actual damage is. And then you've got to pay your own attorney's fees. So this is really legalized extortion. So what ends up happening is the small business owner has to write a big check to this lawyer to avoid being sued. 
And, you know, you have this going on throughout the economy. You have small business owners writing all these checks. Well, they're writing all these checks for blackmail the lawyers. Well, what are they not doing? They're not investing more productively in their businesses, which would result in a more efficient economy, more jobs that are being created. Look, all these restaurants that are going out of business, I mean, COVID is just the latest nail in their coffin, but other nails have been the Americans with Disabilities Act. A lot of small businesses have been put out of business because they can't comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it's not just, you know, restaurants. I mean, I've read articles about miniature golf courses that are closing because they can't accommodate the miniature golf course to wheelchairs. I've read articles and stories about uh, motels around the country that actually fill up their swimming pools with uh, concrete because it's too expensive to make these swimming pools accessible to people in wheelchairs. So it's better to just get rid of the swimming pool entirely. You see, the government is fine. If you've got a swimming pool and you make it so nobody could use it, well, the government's fine with that. What they don't like is if you have a swimming pool that only people who don't have wheelchairs can use. See, that that's bad. So you either have to make it available to everybody or you have to make it available to nobody, which is so ridiculous because most people in wheelchairs, when they check into a motel, they probably have no intention of actually using the swimming pool. In fact, most people who are going to these motels don't use the swimming pool. You know who uses swimming pools? The little kids. That's who uses the swimming pools. Most adults in your typical motel, even if it has a pool, they don't use it, right? But if you are in a wheelchair and the ability to take a swim in the motel, if that's so important to you, then go online, find the motel that has a swimming pool that is accessible to wheelchairs and that's the one you check into. You can't expect every single motel in every little town to have a swimming pool just in case you decide that you want to stay there and that you want to go for a swim. It just doesn't work that way. And in fact, I talked to one guy that operated one of these motels where he, you know, he shut down the swimming pool because the expense of putting in these wheelchair lifts, you know, it was like ten dollars or $15,000. But the other problem was, when you put these things in and the kids are in the pool, the kids ended up playing on them, like climbing on them, diving off of them, and then they would have accidents. And they don't have lifeguards in these pools. And so their insurance rates were going up because the kids were using these wheelchair things like jungle gyms. And so the only thing they could do is like, hey, look, we can't even have a swimming pool. Let's just shut the whole thing down uh, because we really can't afford this accommodation. But how difficult would it be for people in wheelchairs who want to go for a swim to do a little research. I mean, sure, is it inconvenient? Yes, but you know what? Life isn't fair. You've got to deal with these inconveniences because it's too expensive for society to accommodate you. You've got to accommodate society. You know, a lot of people too will say, well, yeah, businesses should, should have to make these accommodations. Okay, well, what about everybody? You know, why shouldn't everybody have to have a swimming pool that is accessible to the handicap. After all, what if, you know, you're having a party at your house and what if somebody uh, in a wheelchair wants to come to your party and then they want to take a swim in your pool, right? I mean, you better have a $10,000 machine at your pool to accommodate him. What about all your bathrooms, right? You better have wheelchair accessible bathrooms and not just one. You better make every single bathroom in your house wheelchair accessible. After all, your wheelchair bound guest he shouldn't have to just use whatever bathroom you chose to accommodate with wheelchair access. I mean, because after all, the people who aren't in wheelchairs, well, they're not confined to just one bathroom. They could use any bathroom. So you should have the same right. You should be able to demand that every single house, every bathroom accommodate your wheelchair so you have freedom to choose which bathroom you want to use, you're not just stuck using the one bathroom that the owner of the house happened to decide was where he was going to make his modifications. And of course, everybody would say, no, 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 we, we're not going to require private people to make these accommodations, just businesses. Well, what are businesses? They're just private individuals who start businesses. You know, it's the smaller businesses that are the most burdened uh, by these requirements. They're the ones that are getting shaken down by these frivolous lawsuits. Look, a friend of mine owns a lot of real estate, and he was sued along with the Starbucks restaurant that he was renting to. And 
the reason for this lawsuit is somebody came into this Starbucks restaurant and the individual was hard of hearing. And in the Starbucks restaurant, they're playing music, right? Just background music. So when you're there, you're ordering your coffee, you got some music. But I mean, they're not a concert hall. They're selling coffee, right? So the music is, is secondary, right? It's there in the background, and but you're there to, to buy a cup of coffee. Anyway, he goes in there and he asks the guy behind the counter if he has this special hearing aid that he can wear while he's standing online and ordering his coffee so that he can hear the music like all the other people who you know don't have this disability. And apparently the Starbucks did not have that piece of equipment uh, readily available. And so this individual had to order his coffee without being able to enjoy all of the music that was playing in the background. Then the guy filed a lawsuit against the Starbucks and my friend for being the landlord that owning the building that Starbucks was renting. And so they're both getting sued for violating the Americans with Disabilities Act because they didn't have this hearing aid, which is ridiculous. Look, if you are hard of hearing, then buy yourself a hearing aid and then take that hearing aid around with you. You can't expect every single business to have a pair of, you know, these hearing aids in case you decide to go in. You carry it around. You just buy one. Every single business is going to have to stockpile these things. I mean, does that apply to elevators? I'm sure it does. I mean, you go into an elevator, it's got music playing. So is every building that has an elevator, are they supposed to have some guy standing in front of that elevator with hearing aids to pass out just in case somebody wants to use the elevator is hearing impaired? I mean, how much extra is that going to cost? I mean, maybe if that's the case, they're just going to have to turn off all the background music. Now, hey, maybe that's not a big deal if you know you can't hear Barry Manilow anymore when you're in an elevator. Uh, but I mean, so then that would be okay, right? According to the government, as long as there's no music in any elevator, so nobody can hear the music, that's perfectly fine. But if you're going to allow people who don't have hearing disabilities to hear the music, then you have to allow everybody, no matter how much it costs, even though people are not going into an elevator for a concert, they're going into the elevator because they don't want to use the stairs, right? So the elevator really helps somebody in a wheelchair, right? Because, you know, obviously they have a harder time using the stairs than people who don't need wheelchairs. So they're going in the elevator because they're trying to get to a higher floor. The music is just a secondary thing. But because you're providing an elevator, you also have to provide hearing aids so they can hear the music that's playing while the elevator is operating. This is the nonsense about the Americans with Disabilities Act, not only about all the money that is wasted, providing for accommodations that really there's no economies of scale, uh, but all of the money that is wasted on these frivolous lawsuits and all the businesses that end up going out of business that wouldn't have gone out of business, but for these lawsuits. Look, I always remember when I was a kid, I used to go to this park or this beach to take my dog. It was up in Malibu. And in order to get to the beach, you had to kind of scale down these rocks. And there wasn't even any steps, right? You really had to scale down these rocks. It wasn't easy to get down. Uh, but, you know, people went down and, you know, they brought dogs. And so it was kind of like a dog beach. But what used to always piss me off is that I always had to park out on PCH because they had a small parking lot. And usually by the time I got there, all the parking spaces were full, except there were like three parking spaces that were never full. They were always empty. And these were for the handicap parking spaces. Now, nobody with a handicap is going to go to this beach, right? If you're in a wheelchair, it is impossible for you to get to this beach. Yet that doesn't matter. You still have to set aside these handicap parking spaces, even though nobody with a handicap is ever going to park in this lot. That's how the law works, right? You're forcing businesses to make accommodations that A, they may never need because there's not enough people with disabilities who are going to go to these businesses. Maybe there's no people with disabilities who are ever going to go to those businesses, yet they still have to make the full accommodation, even though they have no way to recover the cost. Whereas if we allowed the free market to do it, then the investments would still be made. It would just be made in an efficient manner. And all that would be required is for the people with disabilities to do a little bit of research and patronize those businesses that have voluntarily chosen right, to go out of their way to make the investments to accommodate their disabilities. And then you reward those businesses by patronizing them. Another example too, I've talked about before that always just illustrates this 
perfectly the absurdity of these lawsuits. I remember reading about a case, and you know, I'm not making this up, so you can Google this if you want, and you'll read about the case too. But this was a strip club in Southern California that got sued for violating the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the violation had to do with where the strippers were going to perform. And this particular strip club, their thing was that the strippers were in showers. So they were taking a shower and underneath the water, they were stripping. Maybe it was inspired by flash dance or something like that. I don't know, but they stripped under a shower. And these showers were up on these poles, right? So the strippers had to climb up these poles to get into the showers. And then the shower was on top of this pole. And so then the dancers would be dancing in these elevated showers, right? And, and they would strip. Well, the government sued them because they said that there was no way for a stripper in a wheelchair to get into the shower. So in other words, the showers themselves did not accommodate wheelchair-bound strippers because they had no way to get up to the shower to strip, right? So they got sued. But what nobody is talking about is the fact that none of the strippers are in wheelchairs. So what difference does it make? Why do you have to build showers in strip clubs to accommodate strippers in wheelchairs when strippers are not in wheelchairs, right? I mean, when you are in a wheelchair, there are going to be certain jobs that you're just not going to be able to do by virtue of the fact that, that you're in a wheelchair, right? Um, I can think of a whole bunch of them. Um, lifeguard uh, is an example. I mean, how are you going to be a lifeguard on a beach if you're in a wheelchair, right? How are you going to climb up the tower? Uh, even if they put a ramp up there and you can roll yourself up the tower, how are you going to get the wheelchair across the sand, right? Somebody is in the water, they're drowning, you roll down this ramp, but now your wheelchair is in the sand. How are you going to roll this thing through the stand, sand to get to the beach and then pull yourself into the water to the point where you can finally swim? But even if you manage to save this drowning person before they drown, you still got to bring them back to the beach and, and drag them up and give them mouth to mouth. How are you going to do all that uh, in a wheelchair? So, you know, you're in a wheelchair, probably not going to be able to be a lifeguard. What about a fireman? I don't think fireman is a good job for someone in a wheelchair. I mean, how are you going to, you know, <laughs> climb up a ladder to rescue somebody from a burning building if you are, in fact, in a wheelchair, right? So clearly, you know, firemen, they got to be able to walk. You, you can't do that job. Uh, you know, you've got to, if you're in a wheelchair, you just have to accommodate yourself. There are certain jobs that you can do in a wheelchair, no problem. And there are certain jobs you can't, right? You're not going to be a professional uh, football player. You're not going to quarterback in the NFL if you're in a wheelchair, right? I don't care. You know, you could be a great arm. You could throw the ball, but you know, you're down in the wheelchair. You're not going to see over the line. You're not going to quarterback in the NFL. In fact, a lot of people who aren't in wheelchairs, might want a quarterback in the NFL. Hey, I'd love to be an NFL quarterback. Ain't going to happen, right? You have to know your own physical limitations. There's certain things that you can't do, right? You're a short guy. I mean, maybe someone is five foot two, five foot three, not going to be an NFL quarterback. You're just too little, right? You can't help it. That's how tall you are. Just like if you're six foot five and you want to be a professional jockey, you ain't going to get any work. No one's going to hire a six foot five jockey. So maybe you should you know, start playing some basketball and hope that you can excel at that where height is an advantage because to a jockey, it's a disadvantage. So it's the same thing. People have a disadvantage. They have a disability. I can feel bad about it. I can be sympathetic with the fact that somebody's got a disability, but it's up to the person with the disability to accommodate society. It's not up to everybody in society to accommodate every single person's disability. They will to the best of their ability, but you can't force them to make non-economic accommodations, which is exactly what's happening. So if you're in a wheelchair, you can't be a lifeguard, you can't be a fireman, you can't quarterback in the NFL, and you can't be a stripper. See, the problem with a stripper being confined to a wheelchair is one of the things that the audience really wants to see is what you're sitting on in your wheelchair. And so how are you going to be a stripper if you're sitting on your asset. Now, it's possible that there is a tiny percentage of people who have a weird fetish about strippers in wheelchairs. 
but I don't think there's enough of those people to build a business, meaning that the strip club cannot afford to make that investment to cater to such a small minority of potential uh, patrons. So this lawsuit that got filed, it wasn't filed by a stripper in a wheelchair that couldn't do this job. It was just filed by some bureaucrat who went in there, right, probably to see the strip show and noticed, hey, how would a hypothetical stripper in a wheelchair ever get up to that shower? Uh, therefore, they're violating the Americans with Disabilities Act because they haven't made an accommodation that has no practical reason for being made because there are no strippers in wheelchairs. But, you know, I have been talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act from the perspective of how it hurts society, right? Because it's obvious to the extent that every single restaurant, every single hotel, you know, that doesn't go out of business, every miniature golf course that doesn't close up, right? The fact that all of these businesses have now been forced to accommodate people with disabilities, yes, it does make life a little bit better for those people with disabilities. Now, of course, it would be a lot cheaper if we just abolished the law and probably cut every disabled person maybe a $100,000 check per year and just gave them the money. They'd probably be a lot better off and that would be a lot cheaper. And I'm not really sure what the cost is per disabled person. I haven't broken it down, but I'm sure it's a pretty big number and everybody would be happier just giving the disabled a check than forcing the entire country to make all these unnecessary modifications and squander a lot of our scarce resources that could be used in other ways. But one way that the Americans with Disabilities Act actually hurts the disabled is in employment. And this is the biggest irony, because this is where it was expected to do the most good. It wasn't about forcing restaurants to have wheelchair accessible bathrooms. I mean, that was part of it. But what was the real motivating factor behind the bill was to require employers to accommodate disabled workers. And this is where the damage has been done to the disabled, because as a result of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the percentage of people with disabilities who are now employed is much lower than it was before the Americans with Disability Act. Why is that? Well, because the government made it a lot more expensive to hire people with disabilities because the law required all sorts of expensive modifications when you hired somebody with a disability. But it wasn't just the cost of the modifications, but you also had legal exposure, liability from lawsuits if you hired somebody with a disability and your accommodation didn't quite cut it, maybe it wasn't exactly up to code, you left something out, you were vulnerable to being sued by that employee and not only have to cover some damages to the employee, but to cover his legal bills, to cover your legal bills. And so when you make something much more expensive, right, hiring disabled people, businesses will respond by hiring fewer disabled people, right? Now, some people might say, well, then they're discriminating and they can get sued for discriminating against the disabled. Well, that would be very hard to prove because there's not that many disabled people as a percentage of the population. So if I'm a small business owner and I only have maybe five employees, and if none of them happens to have a disability, you can't infer from that that, oh, I'm, I'm discriminating just based on the fact that I have five able-bodied employees and none of them have disability. I mean, if you randomly grab five Americans, they're, they're not going to have a disability. So you can't just look at that. Now, if I'm a big company and I got 10,000 workers and not a single one of those has a disability, then maybe you can argue that, oh, the numbers prove that I must be discriminating because otherwise, what's the explanation for not having any disabled employees? But when you have such a small sample pool, the explanation is simple. Why? Well, I just didn't have any qualified people with disabilities apply. Or maybe one applied, but I had a better application. Somebody was better qualified that didn't have a disability, and I hired that person. It wasn't the disability. It were other factors uh, that went into it. And so you're not going to be able to prove discrimination, even if that is the reason. There are probably a lot of small employers that would have gone out of their way to accommodate somebody with a disability, just because in general, most of us do feel some compassion for people that have disabilities. They do recognize that they could find themselves 
in a similar situation and they would hope somebody else would make accommodations for them. So to the extent that you can do it economically, you'll do it. But once the government imposed a legal requirement and really raised the bar, a lot of people who might have done something to accommodate the disabled decided to do nothing because it was too expensive and too risky. And so now all the people in wheelchairs or who have other disabilities have just like a flashing neon sign above their head, don't hire me, don't hire me. And so that's what's happened. So now you have far fewer people with disabilities getting jobs, and now society has lost the potential benefit of their productivity, and now we have to pick up the extra burden of covering whatever payments they now get from the government because they can't get jobs. And in addition to that, we've imposed this enormous cost on society, on small businesses. It's like another hurdle that small businesses need to overcome in order to survive or in order to get started in the first place. You have to make these other investments, which in many cases are the difference between a profit and a loss. And there are a lot of businesses that simply don't exist because of the ADA and a lot of other businesses that have higher cost structures, charge higher prices and hire fewer people because of the ADA. What we need is to repeal this law, but it's never going to happen for the reasons I stated at the introduction to this topic is that politically it's no good. Nobody wants to vote to hurt grandma in a wheelchair, right? Nobody wants to be the bad guy to repeal the ADA. Nobody wants to take the time that I just did to explain the harmful unintended consequences of this supposedly well-intentioned legislation. (music) 